Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 16 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. Thank you so much for downloading us, whether that be on iTunes, Podbean, or the IWN Network. We really do appreciate each and every download we get. Please do spread the word. This week, as always, I am joined by my co-host, the esteemed sports journalist, Mr. Liam Happ. Liam, how are you doing? How am I doing? I'm bloody hot, that's how I'm doing. It is absolutely smouldering over here. And I suppose it puts us on even kill with the uh, the guests we've managed to fish out for this very special episode. Well, indeed, we have got a guest all the way in, in the ever-sunny Los Angeles. We have Mr. Dave Doyle. Dave, good evening. Welcome to Because WCW. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. How are you doing? We are we are very good. We are we are experiencing the strange phenomenon of nice weather in England. Well, uh, we are we are all very good now. For people uh, people who may not know Dave Doyle, please just by way of introduction, could you tell us uh, tell us a little bit about you? Sure. Um, I am a reporter for MMAfighting.com. I'm a columnist for Yahoo Sports, I should say, a mixed martial arts reporter, if that wasn't obvious by saying MMA fighting. Um, I've been uh, working on the the mixed martial arts beat for about 12 years now, so I've kind of seen and done it all by this point. But like many on the mixed martial arts beat, uh, I was a hardcore wrestling fan long before uh really i was a hardcore wrestling fan before mma was even a thing so um you know um living in los angeles i have you know in the last i I have to say i went probably about a decade or so where i really wasn't watching wrestling for a while i kind of fell fell out of it and over the last year or so uh, i've gotten back into it again um you know we a part of it's just the dumb luck of i'm out here in la and New Japan's put on show in Long Beach, and that uh, helped me get back into it. And we have uh, Pro Wrestling Gorilla out here, which is just tremendous independent wrestling product. And, um, you know, that's kind of got me back into, you know, you end up going down the rabbit hole and going on WWE Network or YouTube or whatever and looking at uh, some of the matches you used to watch back in the day. So, yeah, tapping back into my wrestling fandom in recent days. And uh, talking about shows you used to watch back in the day, of course, you we, we said to you, you know, choose choose a pay-per-view, any pay-per-view, and you have chosen Halloween Havoc 1992. Was there a particular reason for selecting this one? Because it was clearly on the short list of the greatest wrestling cards. Of, okay, I couldn't say that with a straight face. <laughs> um, you know, Halloween Havoc 92, as it turns out, was the very first time I had ever taken a wrestling road trip to a uh, a big event. Um, wow. I was one of those fans who, you know, I'm in my mid 40s, and I like most people, most people who are wrestling fans my age. I did the whole thing where, you know, I was when I was a little kid. Um, I grew up in Boston, so we had the, the WWF when I was a real little kid. It was still Vince McMahon Senior who was running things, um, and then you know 
cable TV comes on, the NWA is on TV, uh, AWA is on ESPN in the United States. We got world-class wrestling on TV in Boston. Um, uh, just all of a sudden, there's a big world of wrestling out there. And, you know, you read the magazines, you do that whole thing. And then get to the early 90s. And again, like a lot of people my age, you start to discover that there's uh, hardcore wrestling fans out there. Uh, for me, right around this time, I started subscribing to the Wrestling Observer in the middle of 1992. And that was just opening a whole new world to me, you know, that I didn't even know exist existed. And it really was a different time back then, you know, like it, it, it's almost hard to explain to like the kids these days that... Um, you know, who have so much wrestling content in front of them. Like you actually literally had to write letters to people to see what tapes they had to see if you could exchange VHS tapes. Um, I remember there used to be in Boston, um, there was a, a Japanese grocery store that had bootleg VHS tapes of all the updated TV shows from Japan. And I'd stomp in there and get a, they had, you know, a, a tape with all Japan and new Japan. Um, every week and that's that's like what you had to go through to uh to to learn about wrestling and become a more hardcore fan and it just you know uh with halloween havoc i think it was partially so this is we used to get nwa they called it worldwide wrestling back then when jim crockett was uh the promoter we would get that on tv in boston and we would actually get on the weekly show you know the the little the local promos that they would put into the shows Oh yeah. Despite the fact that that Boston was 300 miles away from Philadelphia, we got the promos every week for the Philadelphia Civic Center because it was the nearest market where uh, Crockett was promoting regularly. So I got that in my head, you know, all through my high school years as oh, the Philly Civic Center must be an important place to see wrestling, and uh, you know, one thing just kind of led to another, and uh, next thing I knew, I was on a Greyhound bus with a ticket to Philadelphia. And uh, take it to Halloween Havoc. Awesome. I also think that the, I love the idea of a, a Japanese or an Asian grocery store that has uh, bootleg tapes, you know, put on, put on your shop in this packet of noodles, soy sauce and the champion carnival. That's fantastic. Um, so as we go through the show, I'm sure you'll be uh, you'll be giving us some uh, some of your memories from being there, being there firsthand. But um, as uh, as um, Dave has, has mentioned there, this uh, this show, Halloween Havoc '92, comes from Philadelphia. Tony Schiavone opens the show up alongside uh, Pennsylvania native Bruno Sammartino. Um, they talk about the spin the wheel, make the deal match. They list the match choices. We'll get into that later on. Shivani also mentions that uh, Terry Gordy quite simply is not here without any reason given. And the truth is now he'd uh, failed a drug test. And depending on who you believe, he'd either been fired or had quit. Uh, we're also told Rick Rude might be competing in two matches tonight. He's supposed to be challenging for both the NWA world title, but also the US title. And because this is WCW, of course, it's never really explained how that's been allowed to happen. <laughs> but if um, you are not familiar with 1992, then this is well and truly the Bill Watts era of WCW. It's a very short-lived but very distinctive period of time. The personnel have changed. Veterans of the territorial scene have been brought in. Ron Simmons is the first African-American world heavyweight champion as Watts attempts to recreate the success of Junkyard Dog in Louisiana with Simmons on a national basis. 
Uh, moves off the top rope had been inexplicably outlawed. This was only lifted three weeks before the show, although knee drops for the head or throat onto a prone opponent were still banned. Mats on the outside of the ring were removed and the lighting in the arenas had been turned right down so that you can only see the first few rows of fans. So we then cut to Missy Hyatt, who's outside Rude's dressing room. She is dressed like some sort of a gold mermaid and she basically says she doesn't know anything. Cheers, Missy. Uh, we then throw to our commentators for the show, Jim Ross and Jesse Ventura. Jesse is hyped. Uh, and notable in the front row at ringside are the infamous WWF superfan Vladimir, who is wearing a World Bodybuilding Federation vest, and uh, the man who would later be known as ECW's uh, hat guy. And Vladimir's WBF vest mysteriously gets replaced by a WCW T-shirt in the first uh, later on the show. That so, had to be the only, I'm sorry to interrupt, that had to be Vladimir, that had to be the only um, piece of WBF merchandise anyone ever purchased in the history of the world, but carry on. <laughs> it's a good point, well made, Dave. So yes, by this point, we're five minutes into the show, and I'm thinking, can we get on with some bloody wrestling, please? And we start with a cracking six-man tag of Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton, and Michael Hayes versus Tom Zek, Johnny Gunn, and Shane Douglas. It's very weird to see Arn Anderson coming down to Bad Street USA instantly. Um, Hayes has apparently been acting as tactical advisor to Anderson and Eaton. Um, being in Philadelphia, of course, the heels are being cheered, especially when you've got heels as good as Anderson, Eaton, and Hayes. The babyfaces are sporting a trio of amazing mullets. Um, even Jesse Ventura <laughs> comments on the fact that the heels are being cheered. Douglas has blonde hair, is wearing white trunks with tassels on his boots, looking like a classic white meat babyface. All three babyfaces are doing classic opening match face offense such as arm drags and drop kicks and head scissors um jesse venture for some reason bizarrely comments that he reckons douglas is a white a right-wing republican which uh Ross brushes off, but the heels keep outsmarting the babyfaces, much to the crowd's delight, especially when Eaton and Anson make a blind tag and double team Tom Zink. The heels take over on Douglas, they work on his left leg as Anson plays up to the raucous crowd. Finally, Douglas gets the tag to gun uh, with the classic babyface hot tag offense on all three of his opponents. The match breaks down into a six man brawl. Gunn hits a Luthez press on Hayes to get a highly unpopular win for the babyfaces. It's a by-the-numbers opener, but you can't argue with the fact that this opener did its job of getting the crowd warmed up nicely. Dave, what were your thoughts on this one? Um, you know, yeah, it's it's not a bad match for what it was. It was a pretty paint-by-numbers, um, and like you said, six-man opening match. Um, it's also the the booking of the the booking of the match and the finish is pretty emblematic of uh you know everything uh everything bill watts kind of didn't have his pulse on at the time in 1992 are you really going to tell me that you're going to book you know in in the city of philadelphia which is uh you know going on to prove itself as kind of the biggest uh philadelphia set the trend for cheering for cool heels like long before the rest of the country caught on and to just have guys as popular in Philadelphia as Arn and um, and Bobby Eaton and Michael Hayes uh, lose to those guys, I, you know, again, it says um, that, that when Bill Watts came in, when he did things like banning off the top rope and taking out the mats and all that, he really didn't have his, you know, he, he was still, uh, in his head, it seemed like it was still 1982 and he was promoting Monroe, Louisiana, you know? Um, so... To have 
Uh, Shane, Doug- you know, Shane Douglas at that point was still people thought of him as uh, one half of the dynamic dudes. He wasn't the franchise, the person he came along to be. And Tom Zink, all due respect to those who have passed, was a you know fairly talented guy who never really caught on. And Johnny Gunn, who is Tom Brandy, uh, who has spent most of his career as an independent wrestler. I mean, he's someone who's going to go like when he passes on his gravestone, I think is going to say, I pinned Michael Hayes in a pay-per-view once, you know, that was uh, his kind of big moment there. Um, but again, it, decent enough match, but just the mere fact that you'd be tone deaf enough to have those guys lose to uh, a bunch of, you know, 1970s baby faces that kind of sums up the Bill Watts era to me in a way. Liam? Yeah, personally, I can't believe you two would dare to insinuate that a, uh, a a booker who shoves Eric Watts down everyone's throats and who has Ron Simmons <laughs> as the top man, the champion, has no idea how to present a babyface. That's absolutely absurd. But yeah, you, you guys are spot on. It's fascinating. We're, I always make a big deal about analysing the opening match of these pay-per-views. The art of the open is very important. And in this one, it's amazing. This is the first time on this show we've covered a, an opening match where they've got so much right and then there's just that one little thing they've got wrong and it's fucked everything up because you, as you guys <laughs> touched upon you you put this in any other city in the country at this point in 1992 and you've got pretty much a perfect opener it's you know it's it's hovering in good to decent territory it's simple enough it warms you up it's a it's a cold match the things with storylines and personal investment can be safer later on the card when you want to start to really manipulate the live crowd reactions and yeah, no one on in, in this particular arena is going to give a monkey's toss about this trio. It's a shame because, yeah, you, you watch it completely cold. 2018 eyes, as Dean always likes to say, it's pretty damn good stuff to get going. I, and I've got to say, because I know we're going to get into the meat of things uh, not too long later on, I've got to say, when when I first went through this, I came in thinking, yeah, I, I was well aware of the reputation of Havoc 92. I knew it was absolutely... Uh, yeah, it's got one of the worst reputations of all the WCW pay-per-views. And I came in, I watched this, I thought, you know, it's not, yeah, I know what's to come to an extent, but we're not off to a bad start. Maybe maybe it's going to maybe it's gonna sugarcoat things before the shit sandwich comes, I thought. <laughs> okay, well, we're back in the dressing area with Missy Hyatt again. Uh, she spots Harley Race approaching. She asks Race to get her into Rude's dressing room. Uh, Harley Race refuses, and she comments to the camera, that's the first time Missy Hyatt's not been invited inside a locker room. Yep, they actually got her to say that. Yes. And, yeah, I've got to say, as a, as a hormone-addled 16-year-old boy, as I was in 1992, I loved Missy Hyatt. But um, watching back now as a cynical middle-aged man, I do wonder what purpose she actually served on these shows, as her performances were always so horribly, horribly wooden. Um, Shivani and Bruno speculate on what uh, Harley Race is doing in Rude's dressing room. Um, but match number two is what on paper looks like it should be a tremendous matchup. Brian Pillman against Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. So Pillman comes out to his old music, wearing his old Bengals trunks, but he's now a heel with a scowl on his face and a slow walk to the ring. Um, Steamboat had lost the TV title to Scott Steiner a few weeks prior to the show, um, <laughs> although Scott Steiner is nowhere to be seen on this. And I believe this was uh, Bill Watts giving him the title in an attempt to stop him from going to WWF, which as history will show, worked really well. Nope, he'd, um, he'd already quit by this point. 
Oh, day, had you already day, quit? Days I... before, yeah. Steiners were... I'm not sure what the exact plan was, but the Steiners were scheduled to wrestle on Halloween Havoc. Uh, and yeah, he, he was gone. Not just Terry Gordy, oh. but the Steiners as well. So fantastic start leading into this pay-per-view. Yeah, because they, they turned up... Was it Rumble 93 is their first big show? So I think yeah, they yes. turned up a little bit before then. So yeah, a few months before. Yeah, so around about this time. Um, so even the basic exchanges early on in the match, Steamboat selling and fire on his offense are unparalleled. You know, I, I've said this before, but um, when I'm if ever I'm in a training school with like with with new young guys or even on a show with younger guys, I always tell them baby faces that watch Ricky Steamboat for babyface selling because to my to me there's no one better. Um, the story to this match is that Steamboat's the more experienced and superior wrestler, and Pillman is resorting to cheap tricks to uh, gain the advantage. Um, but unlike the previous match, this crowd are right behind Steamboat and chant Brian sucks to uh, Pillman. Pillman's usual offense isn't present here as uh, it emphasizes his heel persona. You know, after a while, he wants to execute a, a crowd-pleasing top rope move. Steamboat executes a cross-body block attempt from the middle rope, which gets blocked by a Pillman dropkick. Um, while the ban has been lifted on top rope moves, they do still seem to be limited. Um, Pillman chops... So Steamboat chops Pillman outside of the ring, but then he gets caught by Pillman while he's getting back in the ring, and a chop battle ensues both in and out of the ring. A top rope sunset flip is rolled through by Pillman, but Steamboat flips Pillman over. If you think about the this classic Guerrero Malenko series of near fall sequence, that gets him the three count. It's a, a solid enough match, but for me, it was just lacking a little bit of a spark. What did you think, Dave? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think the match itself was fine. Um, I kind of feel like, you know, sometimes in wrestling, you see a match that's on paper that's that's just like, hey, this could steal a match of the night here. And then they're not booked enough time to, to um, make the match as good as it can possibly be. And I think there's a little bit of that. I feel like um, had they been building towards a 20-minute match, um, this would have been like, a perfectly acceptable kind of start to that. And it finished in what, like eight or nine minutes or something like that. Um, in terms of the presentation of the match, I mean, I don't correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think Pillman was like a full fledged heel. I think it was more like, uh, because this was a babyface versus babyface match in Philadelphia, he was smart enough to just kind of do the subtle heel knowing that Ricky Steamboat being the veteran is, is who, uh, you know, the crowd was more likely going to side with. So I think it was um, smartly presented in that manner. But yeah, I've got I've got nothing bad to say about this match other than, you know, I wish it had gone another five to ten minutes because it seemed like it was just starting to heat up to that point. Yeah, ten minutes 25 was the... Uh, 10 minutes 25 was the running time of that match. So um, exactly as you say, Dave. Liam? Yeah, no, actually, I believe he was freshly turned at this point. I think they run the angle on TV... Or maybe a clash, I'm not sure. But they did the angle where he had a bit of an argument with um, Brad Armstrong, uh, who was injured. And I think, he, I think he knocked Brad Armstrong over while he was on crutches. So he, 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 yeah. he literally, the, the turn had just started. And I thought it was, it, was good subtle, it was good subtle work in that respect, in that he hadn't really... like dove head first into it yet he you know he's not had a, a proper program with another wrestler as a heel and funny enough I mentioned that because that that for me was the was what these two needed here is 
ideally to get the best out of this particular match you've got two great performers but they need a program they need three to six months of working with each other and you always got to remember the house show circuits and things like that when two guys are fusing they usually wrestle each other on the house show circuit and build up a bit of uh, of extra chemistry and really get their things down pat to the point on the big arena shows or the pay-per-views they they have a much better match and they do the best showcase of what they've uh, put together for me considering what we said about the match before i would have if i was booking i would have swapped these two around once i got that little sense that philadelphia weren't going to be a huge fan of the baby faces because at least then you're channeling the that that hot crowd you get at the start, despite the fact that WCW always fucking insists on having, like Dean said, that five-minute talking period. You know, you have the big intro to show. There's no pyro at this point, I'm, I'm sure, but you, you have the ring announcer. You were there, Dave. You have the ring announcer say, right, you are welcome to Halloween Havoc. Get that first match out there. The crowd are pumped. But no, they have that, all that talking. But... Getting back on point, this this match I think would have taken better advantage because there was no issue between the two. It was uh, just matchmaking for the pay-per-view. Two great workers, stick them in that opening slot. They'd have probably worked the crowd a little better. It's a very basic match, and yeah, if they'd have had a feud after this, great. But at the time, I was, you know, you know, Brian Pillman was not a big person on the Bill Watts uh, list of favour. Uh, no. Bill Watts was not fair. He he tried to lowball Brian Pillman, basically wanted to tear up the contract that he had that was binding for, not sure off the top of my head how long for, but you know, he still had this guaranteed contract. He wanted Pillman to agree to tear that up and work for a fraction of it with little or no injury cover or anything like that and got incensed when Pillman rightfully said fuck off. And so, you know, to tie that, to tie, kind of tie that back into Watch being out of touch, Pillman had been really hot earlier in the year. He had, yeah. uh, he, you know, he had a, like a five star match with Jushin Thunder Liger on, um, I forget which pay per view, but one of the pay per views. Super Bowl two. Super Brawl. And he got, you know, was getting a big push. And he was exactly the type of young talent WCW should have been pushing at the time. And, you know, Bill Watts comes stomp, stomping on in and, uh, has a different agenda and, and again I, i'm gonna repeat this a lot but he was really out of touch at the time but also we um we had a previous episode where we looked at wrestle war 92 which was in may and that had that massive uh war games with sting squadron and the dangerous alliance and because of so much uh heavyweight star power being put at the top there were, if you remember, Dean, there were four or five light heavyweight division matches on the undercard. Yes. So it was a very good show. And there, the, the, I think the irony we discussed on that episode was that Bill Watts got the job days before. To the point where, you, you know, he couldn't really have an active influence because he'd just got shown up at his office by the time the pay-per-view aired and all the matches had been advertised. But after that pay-per-view, and I think there's only um, five months between WrestleWar and this pay-per-view, Halloween Havoc, he had pretty much completely stomped on the light heavyweight division he had washed his hands of Pillman he's being used as a job at the stars here and it's telling that his, his next significant thing would only come Hollywood Blonde Steve Austin early 93 once Watts had been given the heave-ho definitely one thing I just do, do need to pick you up about Liam is that you were saying about how you know the the crowd at the beginning of a the show they you know they needed they'd have been hot and needed warming up for a good match you're missing the fact that uh, we had had a dark match where eric watson van hammer had beaten the vegas connection of vinnie vegas and diamond dallas page oh man and i'm I'm sure dave will testify that that made philadelphia so amped for this pay-per-view watching that 
I was going to ask Dave, how did the uh, the live crowd react to Eric Watts in the opening match going over? Let's just say uh, not very well. Um, I mean, look, there's again. So you've got. I don't know back then that anyone would have necessarily seen that Diamond Dallas Page and Kevin Nash were going to be two of the biggest stars in the sport within a few years. Uh, certainly, even back then with DDP, uh, you know, he had been working mostly as a manager and had just kind of started as an active regular wrestler. Even back then, he had just carried himself with a certain presence that said that he could be something. Uh, but again, just the mere fact that those two guys had to go over with the boss's son and not only go over, but I mean, Watts went so over the top pushing his kid that, uh, Massachusetts STF was kind of like a hot finisher at the time. And he gave Eric Watts the STF and, you know, Watts had uh, trouble not tripping over his own feet, getting into the ring. So, um, yeah, that match pretty much went about as you would expect. Excellent. Right, back to the pay-per-view. Teddy Long is backstage in the NWA World Champion Masahiro Chona, who we've just been talking about in the dressing room. Um, He's accompanied by Hiro Matsuda, who is billed as the spokesman, i.e. he speaks English. Uh, NWA President Seiji Sakaguchi and a track-suited Kensuke Sasaki. Chono has chosen Sasaki as his referee for his match with Rude, where both men can choose an official. This is so confusing, by the way. Um, We then go to Shivani with Bill Watts, who says that Harley Race will be Rude's chosen official. We're also told that Steve Williams um, has chosen his namesake, Steve Austin, as his new partner to replace Terry Gordy. Watts states that Gordy has been suspended indefinitely for breaching his contract. Watts is now talking about Rick Rude's attorneys and lawsuits about the U.S. title match and says that Big Van Vader will now be facing Nikita Koloff for the US title as Vader will be defending it on his behalf. Uh, This is all still so very confusing and bear in mind this is a pay-per-view and we've now had five minutes of what is essentially admin being carried out on air. So it is now time for a no DQ match for the WCW United States title as Big Van Vader your surrogate champion defense against Nikita Koloff. Koloff is now billed as living in the United States to make him the babyface. Uh, Rude comes out looking very smug as he's got his own way thanks to legalities. He's also shaved his mustache. It looks so wrong. Um, Ole Anderson wearing a suit and announced out of the blue as a special enforcing referee has banned Rude and Race from ringside. This all, all just comes across as hastily thought out and very clunky. Um, Vader soon has Koloff cornered and peppers him with rights and lefts, followed by an avalanche splash in the corner and a stiff-looking clothesline that turns Koloff inside out. Koloff fires back uh, and knocks Vader to the ground with a clumsy-looking cross-body block to Vader's back. On the outside, Vader clobbers Koloff in the back with a steel chair right by the commentary table, and a fan then decides to throw a drink at Vader's head. Ventura calls him an idiot fan, saying it's the dumbest thing you can do at a wrestling event. That wasn't you, was it, Dave? <laughs> um, Vader blocks the sunset flip attempt with a, uh, a sit-down splash on Koloff. Koloff kicks out of a second rope splash from Vader, which Ross sells big on commentary. Uh, Koloff attempts to do a back suplex, but that goes horribly wrong. They both kind of collapse to the floor. Um, Koloff manages to slam Vader for a two-count. Koloff's Russian sickle sends Vader over the top rope to the floor. He tries to hit another one on Vader, who moves, and Koloff clotheslines the ring post, which he sells big. 
Uh, Vader wins it with a power bomb after Koloff notably slows down to retain the US title on behalf of Rick Rude. It transpired after the event that the reason Koloff had slowed down was that he suffered a herniated disc from the Vader clothesline and also suffered a hernia quite possibly during that back suplex that went wrong. Uh, and this actually turned out to be Nikita Koloff's last ever wrestling match. The no DQ aspect of it was was only mildly exploited, but as a big Vader fan myself, I found this to be an enjoyable, hard-hitting heavyweight match. What did you make of it, Dave? Um, you know, Watt's push of Vader is, is a sign that... Um, Watts actually did get a few things right, you know, as, as much as his era in WCW was rightfully slagged, um, you know, Vader had been in WCW, but Watts really kind of, uh, you know, gave him that run with the world title, kind of gave him the ball and let him run with it. So you gotta, you gotta, um, there were some guys, he, he, Watts also kind of uh, got behind Cactus Jack pretty well and gave him a pretty good push towards the end of his run there. So you do have to give Watts a nod a little bit for uh, identifying some talent and getting some things right. And in this case, um, all right, so the storyline twists and were in, in uh, you know, the, the, the entire storyline was convoluted. I'm not sure how exactly, I mean, I, I don't know. I, my brain's turning itself into a not trying to make sense of it. So I'm not going to try to, but, um, <laughs> you know, um, Vader, look, Vader, th this is kind of everything good and bad about, uh, about the late great Leon white. Um, Nikita w was kind of on his last legs as a, uh, as an attraction in the NWA slash WCW anyway, but, Vader was talented enough that he got a pretty good match out of him. You know, Nikita was the type of guy that, uh, especially early on, he had a really strong presence, a really strong character, but you needed to have the right opponent in there for him to uh, to to accentuate his positives and, and kind of hide his negatives. Vader did a really good job with that. Unfortunately, part of Vader's legacy was that he hurt people. And, um, you know, like you said, this ended up being Nikita Koloff's final match. And if we're being honest about Vader's entire legacy um, as one of the truly all-time great wrestlers and probably the best big man in, in pro wrestling history, he was a little sloppy and a little careless, too. So that, you know, unfortunately, too, is part of the match. But just the fact that he got a pretty decent match out of Nikita in and of itself as a testament to, uh, to what Vader could do. I mean, one thing with, um, with Bill Watts is that, it, and you, you really get the impression from this whole pay-per-view was that he came from a different era from like, you know, 10 years previous or so where, and he still had that mindset. And I'm, I'm thinking Vader and to a degree Cactus Jack, especially Vader was that, old school traditional monster heel believable heel that that Watts would have would have liked absolutely 10 years prior they you know vader versus the junkyard dog would have done 30,000 people in the superdome or 20,000 they would have would have been big big money and cactus jack would have as well yeah i'm i'm really glad we got vader versus nikita koloff on a paper at the very least uh it is a good pairing it's a, it's a shame with the Nikita injury situation, but to be honest, I'm not entirely sure how he was coming into it because I, I feel like there was a vibe where he was on his way out anyway, but I could be wrong. 
Um, obviously, suffering some injuries due to a bit of uh, stiffness from Vader doesn't help, but as Dave said, and as we covered on the last episode where we paid tribute to the life and times of Vader, that was, that was one of the things. He, he did have a tendency to to go very stiff and there was always some battle uh, wounds from it. Yeah, one one real moment that's that fit into no disqualification and part of me wonders that if uh, a certain recognisable guy who'd, who'd then eventually become a notable ECW wrestler in the front row wasn't shouting, use the chair, use the chair <laughs> with his mates to Vader. Uh, I'm starting to wonder if there may not have been anything to warrant a no disqualification tagline. But again, that that, that came from the, the, the Koloff Rude issue. And they made some changes, and the way they made the changes was ridiculous. And to, as you said, to have all the the soap opera discussions and the whys and the what's and where's, not on a fucking pay per view. Do that on TV. Yes. That is that is the definition of wrestling TV. Have you know only have twenty minutes of wrestling to an hour. Have some squabbles. Have some contracts. That's the idea of wrestling TV. And the pay per view, we just want matches, conflicts, resolutions. Bam, bam, bam. So it really took the stuffing out of it a little bit, and it that's not even the worst it gets. We'll cover that in a little bit. But no, I just interject here real quick. It also comes across if you save all that stuff for the pay per view, it just comes across as a bait and switch. You know, like we, if you weren't building up that uh, that whole storyline um, on television, you just at the very last minute said, oh well, the lawyer said this, blah blah blah. That you know. That that kind of makes the person who plunked down, I guess, twenty bucks at the time for this uh, feel like feel like they've been uh, cheated a little bit. So carry on. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, Rude was a very good heel who'd been U.S. champion for eleven months at this point. It's very conceivable to say that people were looking forward to watching him lose the belt and to put a scenario up where he had rubbed Bill Watts up the wrong way and was punished for for his antics and his greed in trying to pursue the NWA title and keep hold of his US belt or maybe get out of defending the US belt because he's trying to hoard another belt and he goes, no, you're going to face the music and you're going to do two matches. That could get people gathering over to see him lose the title. So, yeah, if you're you're thinking, no, this is, you know, this whole storyline that unfolds is our way of moving Vader in so he has something to do while he's waiting to get the title back from Ron Simmons, it all makes sense, but spell it out on TV. So it's a shame that, um, but yeah, I've, otherwise it's a, it's a good. And to be honest, I went into this with I, I'd heard of the reputationist match about how oh wow Vader just massacres Nikita Koloff uh, and sends him packing from the company. To be honest, it was you know it's Vader dominates, but Vader dominates a lot of his matches as part of his aura of being the Monster Hill. You think of the way he won the title from Sting. Sting didn't look bad from that, but he gave Vader a lot, and Nikita gave Vader a lot, rightfully so. Uh, They still did the moments there where Nikita kind of kicked out of big moves to look resilient. They had the thing where his finish was protected. Vader fell through the ropes and out of the ring so that he didn't actually kick out of the Russian sickle. So... He wasn't presented in that bad a way, but yeah, ultimately this was the swan song for Koloff. But no, it was it was a good enough undercard match, and it it made sense in a lot of ways if they didn't present it so because WCW. <laughs> I, I think as well, you know, this is as as we've we've mentioned and, and Dave's touched on as well. You know, you're you're paying twenty dollars, whatever it is, for a pay per view. 
And as you said, Liam, you want wrestling. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it does work to have a little bit of an angle or have a, an intense promo or whatever. But when you've got basically a bloke in his 50s in a grey suit talking about attorneys, that's just the time. That's that's piss break time, isn't it? Yeah, and if you th- if you think about it, Dave, you know Dave and I know each other because we've both done the beat on either side of the Atlantic, covering fight sports, MMA for um, Yahoo and a few other places. But if you think about, it, imagine a UFC card where half of the show was some of the shit you see on social media, or they decided to take some of the some of the really good color content. And there is some great MMA color content, such as you know Ariel Helwani's Monday show just moved to ESPN, and and, and they decide you know what we're going to have half the pay per view, we're going to have some of this talk. Just, just imagine that when you've paid to watch it. So that's the, yeah, you know, and and that's and you'd have that feeling if it was good, uh, non fighting, non resolution content. Think of the heat that they get at WrestleMania if they put like a little five-minute concert on. Yeah, or if they just did long talking self-indulgent sessions that made the show go a total of seven. Oh wait, that's real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I mean, that's talking in the that's in the concept in the context of now where we've had twenty years of being used to uh, lots and lots of talk on television. But back then, the you know, that didn't fly that um, you had your interviews and your promos and stuff, but you didn't have long, terrible, boring, drawn out uh, talking skits as much on television, even, you know, much less pay-per-view. So that just made it stick out like more of a sore thumb uh, in that context. Yeah. Uh, in 1992, it's worth remembering pay-per-view was the last golden goose wrestling had in a very bad down period uh and things like this will only dwindle that cash cow further okay so uh jim ross and jesse ventura now speculate about the uh personal problems between the tag team champions dustin rhodes and barry windham this would lay the foundations for a great feud that they had a few months later um including that awesome match we were talking about on the last episode that i saw at wembley arena um teddy long interviews steve williams and steve austin and then missy hyatt interviews rhodes and windham neither team say particularly much so it is time for the uh unified nwa and wcw world tag team championship uh, as Steve Williams and Steve Austin take on Dustin Rhodes and Brian Pillman, the commentators wonder how the late change in tag partners for Williams might have an impact on the game plan of the tag champions. Uh, the crowd are on the side of Williams here, probably out of respect for his achievements in Japan, as it's the Philly Smart fans who are making the noise. This starts out very deliberate with a lot of grappling, much like a Japanese match, actually. The crowd have also settled into the pattern of a Japanese crowd. Uh, Wyndham and Rhodes are tagging in and out smoothly, while Austin and Williams have only made one tag in the opening seven or eight minutes to highlight the difference between the, the permanent team and the makeshift team, I guess you'd call them. Uh, Wyndham takes over on Austin with the heavy artillery, a flying clothesline, one of his trademark vertical suplexes where he'd swing people over with ease. I always like watching them. Uh, Williams then tags in and Wyndham gets the better of Williams in a slugfest but misses a flying tackle, rolls to the floor as the 10-minute mark is announced. This allows Williams and Austin to isolate Wyndham and work on him. Rhodes then finally gets the hot tag and the crowd come to life as he nails both opponents with elbows, clotheslines and a bulldog on Austin. 
Uh, Williams slows the pace right down and takes over on Rhodes at the 20-minute mark. Rhodes has now been singled out and the challenges are making the more frequent tags. Williams hits a big belly-to-belly suplex for the two-count as Gary Michael Capetta announces that there are five minutes to go in the time limit. Incidentally, did they announce time time party in the other matches or is it just this one yes, really they tight? did they did i thought they did which is that's good well done wcw done i, I right. liked that dean and i liked the little the old school uh graphics that came up on the screen just before the bell with the uh they have the formula they have their names the weight the hometowns other little things yes. like that. one some sometimes old school can be nice in a in yes. a cosmetic way, it adds to a certain realistic feel. But yeah, obviously, as, as we said, the the actual product had passed what's by, and he didn't realise the difference between yes. the two. Yes, um, there's now four minutes to go, so Austin sinks in a single leg Boston Crab, which he keeps on for a minute. There's no sense of urgency; the pace hasn't picked up. Rhodes finally makes the tag, but Williams has referee Randy Anderson distracted, so he won't allow the tag. While the refs putting Wyndham back, the heels throw Rhodes over the top rope, which is an illegal move in WCW. Wyndham gets back in the ring, tries to slam Austin. Austin's foot smacks the ref in the head, sending him out of the ring. Uh, Wyndham goes for a roll up on Austin, but Williams hits him with a clothesline. Nick Patrick comes down to ringside. Austin makes the cover. Patrick counts to three. We've got new champions, we think. But Randy Anson gets back in the ring and says no. Jim Ross explains that Rhodes is the legal man. Rhodes then rolls up Austin for a two count, but the bell rings anyway. Um, there's still a minute and a half left in the time limit. Someone's screwed up by ringing the bell. Rhodes and Austin remain the legal men in the, the ring. Uh, Williams and Wyndham brawl back in the ring. Rhodes hits a tombstone pile drive with 30 seconds to go, but can't follow up. The time limit expires. The match ends in a draw. And so Wyndham and Rhodes retain the tag belts. Um, for me, this was sort of the way the match was worked, telegraphed the time limit draw. Apart from the closing three minutes or so, I thought the match was contested at a very slow pace and it wasn't all that exciting. Um, crowd only seemed to come to life at the end seeing as this was the only time that the makeshift team of Williams and Austin would team up I don't understand why the champions couldn't have been given a clean win here um, and as 1992 ended it's notable that Williams left WCW for good and Austin formed the Hollywood Blondes tag team with Brian Pillman you know there, there's nothing really technically wrong with this fight you know it's it's um not like the work is bad but the crowd was just Dead, 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 dead for this match. Um, I don't know how much of it was. Uh, I think when I think the crowd was pretty excited for Williams and Gordy, who were a, a very popular tag team. They certainly would have been popular in Philadelphia. And I think um, Wyndham and Rhodes uh, were actually pretty underrated tag team. They they worked pretty well together, but this just ended up being like the. Uh, you know, the, the whole didn't really add up to the sum of the parts here. Uh, I don't know if it's because, you know, I, I don't know if it was because Williams and Austin kind of lack chemistry together, not being um, not being a, a regular tag team. Or it may have just been the fact that it was kind of obvious from the pace that they worked at the get go. So, you knew, you know, the whole crowd knew that Williams and Austin weren't winning the championship. The The, the pace at which this was worked just... They may have well just had semaphore flags and just screamed like, hey, we're going to a draw. You know, I think <laughs> the crowd kind of sensed that. And because of that, they never really got into it. You know, I think we also have to have a little bit of a shout out here to um, among the other weird ideas Watts came up with, like simply bringing back the NWA titles 
WCW had just gotten to the point it had been what a year a year and a half where they had ended their affiliation with the NWA and they just went to calling their belts the WCW belts it had just gotten to the point where the audience had accepted okay it's the WCW world title not the NWA world title so to 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 bring the uh, the NWA belts back into the uh into the picture really just kind of served to confuse things and uh, kind of deflated both the NWA and the WCW belts at a time that they should have been more concerned about uh, ab- about pushing their brand. Um, yeah. So again, this this is just like like a lot of things with this uh, with this card. Something that looked on looked pretty good on paper just didn't click, and you can kind of sense the snowball starting to to go downhill in terms of this becoming a bad show. Yeah, I mean, it, I was going to say that it was absolutely perfect as far as the transition goes, where you've had three perfectly acceptable matches with a, you know, with a little kink here or there, but watchable content, enjoyable enough, three matches, and then you have this match, which is, this was four guys going out and doing some wrestling. Nothing more, nothing less. And they're four guys who are very good at wrestling. But for the multitude of reasons, you know, the the Terry Gordy. And you you have to imagine that maybe the with with the issue they had been portraying with um with Wyndham and Rhodes on TV, they were due, they were about to split up. Uh, I'd imagine that if it weren't for the issue with Gordy, that the belts were going back to the Miracle Violence connection. Um, sure. And that might have thrown a spanner in it because they're, they're building up this issue. Wyndham and Rhodes have pretty much had a fight on TV. You know, they, they, they smacked each other in the face and everything. Big, big falling out. How are they going to defend the belts? And they're all good as gold here. And it, so, so this was just a... It was it was almost like just passing time, waiting to the point where they could actually pull the trigger on the the tag title change and subsequent split a little bit later. Once they'd got their heads around Gordy leaving, which is a shame because um, yeah, it, it was building to something good, uh, as you said, Dina. The Winner Rose feud was good, and the match they had, where I believe they lost the belts eventually to Douglas and Steamboat. And that was the match where Rhodes didn't capitalise on an accidental low blow, which was kind of lampshade a little bit when we did Spring Stamp in the last uh, episode with Eddie and Charvin. I touched upon uh, that reference. They did this match at the Clash. Uh, they lost the belts. Wyndham snapped, and, and it all just happened so randomly. So for 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 half an hour, here, we're just watching this and. It's not bad. I have to stress, it's not a bad match, but it's just, there's just no reason to actually watch it. And as Dave says, it's it's it really is the transition at the halfway point where we go from perfectly acceptable to perfectly acceptable but baffling, ridiculous, and a bit stupid to just baffling, ridiculous, and stupid. Yeah. Do you know the the key word I think you used there, Liam, was enjoyable. The other matches were enjoyable. I really wanted to enjoy this because it's four wrestlers that I, I like very much. And it just didn't it just didn't click. It seemed that the four of them were wrestling for Bill Watts as opposed to wrestling for the audience. Yeah, Dave, Dave's probably not gonna care for this reference much, but you know, the day we're recording this, even record we've just had some World Cups football slash soccer games in the afternoon and we just had the first game in, you know we've had loads of the games already first match has actually gone without any goals it's gone scoreless between France and Denmark it unanimously been decided it's already the most boring game of the tournament both 
teams had every reason just to play a dull game because it benefited them as far as getting through the, the, the groups and getting into the knockout stage. So it was it made sense. It it was a legitimate sporting thing that happened, but there was no reason for anyone watching to to want to care about it or keep watching beyond five minutes. It would tune people out to watch the other dead rubber game because at least there was excitement and goals and people trying. And it's, it's important to remember that when it comes to professional wrestling, everyone, even at 92, most people know it's predetermined. You suspend your disbelief. You need to fucking entertain. At least footballers can go, yeah, I don't care about people being entertained we've got a job to do we've got progress to make wrestling is 100% to entertain and that's why this is that's why this match leans in the negative territory more than the good because you really have to be an absolute purist who appreciates five minutes of basic wrestling whenever you can get it to actually find an upside to watching this match if I can if I can interject here on um just how bad of a turn the show takes from here uh, with this kind of being the transition to uh, the show going off the cliff. So I think we have uh, four matches the rest of the way. And out of those four matches, three of them placed in the top seven for uh, Wrestling Observer Worst Match of the Year. Uh, um, the, the the next match up between uh, Rick Rude and Masachono finish number one uh barbarian versus um i'm sorry jake versus sting placed third and ron simmons versus barbarian placed seventh and just another stat for you here to give give your listeners a um just context of how poorly this show was viewed at the time for the wrestling observers worst show of the year not only did halloween havoc win worst show of the year but it was it finished first with 318 votes second place was one of the wcw bashes and the second place finisher had 26 votes so landslide <laughs> oh, that's territory we're about to enter here yep yeah and and herb abrams had a booking license that you know he had a promoter's <laughs> license in the early 90s and he still couldn't come close to this uh, i just want to say i actually saw I, i'm sorry to interrupt i no. actually Herb Abrams put on one pay-per-view that was absolutely terrible. I don't know if that was 1991 or 92, but I actually watched that one too. And I just, um, I just had like an, an almost like an LSD flashback thinking about that, but yeah. carry on. Now the worst part is Dave, you said there were, f that's three of the four matches. I, I, I regret to inform you, but that is literally the last three matches of the show. That is all we've got from here on. That is the show. Those three matches on the list. That is the show. So I want to thank you for coming. Thanks, Dean. That's the end of the podcast, right? <laughs> please. please yeah. Dean, Hasht please. Hashtag spoilers. It gets shit from here. Please don't um, make me carry on. <laughs> I don't want to. Um, just, I'm just looking up um, the, uh, the UWF um, pay-per-views. It was... The, the only show that they did, let me see, they did a um, live pay-per-view event called Beach Brawl, June 19, 1991. Which was in Las Vegas. I don't recall there being any beaches in Las Vegas, but that would be Herbie for you. Uh, yeah. This It says Beach Brawl was in Fl Palmetto, Florida. Oh, what was I thinking of? Their first and only live pay-per-view event. And then you had Blackjack Brawl, which is their only live television event. 
because it aired on the Sports Channel America, and that was from the MGM Grand Garden. Oh, okay, that's what I was thinking of. Uh, Mick Foley. Yeah. Mick Foley has an absolutely hilarious passage uh, about that whole event in uh, in in his book Have a Nice Day. It's it's, it's worth rereading. But yeah, that was. Um, Fortunately, uh, Herb Abrams didn't didn't last. His promotion didn't last long enough to do any podcasts on. So, yeah. yeah. And I and I just want to point out for the record that the three of us are all collectively currently putting off discussing the last three matches of Havoc '92. <laughs> but I'm, I'm and we're choosing to talk about Herb Abrams so wrestling shows instead. <laughs> that is you know how what, bad I'm, this is about to get. Yeah, I, I'm now thinking of doing a special one-off. Uh, spin-off podcast called because uwf okay let's let, let's move back to the uh the pay-per-view and T- tony shivani conducts an interview with vader harley race and paul e dangerously who takes credit for the master plan of vader defending on rude's behalf medusa then barges in to conduct an interview with her back to camera well done um paulie then explodes that medusa says he's had it with her he declares himself the boss because he is a man and she is just a subservient woman who he hired to take care of all of rick rude's needs nudge nudge and the only reason he hired her was because the other hooker he had in mind was unavailable couldn't get away with this in 2018 <laughs> could you um he fires her for whatever is left of the dangerous alliance and shoves her medusa then kicks him in the face to a huge pop she continues to stomp him as security and refs run in this to me was the best bit of the show yeah absolutely if uh, I I specifically remember this one because it, it was the one thing all night that just absolutely brought the roof down on the Philadelphia Civic Center. Um, I was so where I was sitting, I was about I don't know about 15 rows back on the floor, and I was the Philadelphia Civic Center was kind of a, a funky old building, you know, like arenas are all kind of cookie cutter these days. But there was a big stage, no seating, just a big stage on one end of. Uh, one end of the building where they were conducting all the interviews. And then there was a, just a giant balcony that there was most of the seating in the building that, you know, came from the roof of the building all the way down to about, it seemed like 10 feet off the floor. So I was on the floor staring directly at the, um, at, at the stage from where I was. And of course, back then you didn't have the big screens all over the, uh, over the building, certainly yeah. not in a uh, building like this. So I had to get up on my seat to actually like kind of see it. And then all I could really see from where I was, was Medusa delivering an absolutely perfect kick to Paul to, uh, to, you know, knock him to the floor and then really lay in some kicks. And again, the, the crowd just absolutely devoured this and they were, um, completely fired up for whatever was coming next. And then we'll, we'll let you take that from there. Yeah. For, for me, this is, this is absolute, perfection if you're going to do something like this and you say you wouldn't get away with it 20 years later you know what you do it like this you probably can because we've mentioned this on previous episodes where we had uh i think in uh was it uncensored 96 you had colonel robert parker against medusa medusa again used in a in a role where they actually had parker cheat to beat medusa in the match they ended up having and that was the problem it's it's if you're gonna do these things you know the, the, these issues in, in life, you know, sexism, racism, all, all these sort of unsavory things. It make, it gets heat, it makes a bad heel, but it's absolutely imperative that heel gets the shit kicked out of them. And that's what makes this so great. He comes out, as you said, the, the whole line with the hook, it's a killer line. 
he's in the wrong, he's the bad guy. And, but it's it's a gloriously good line for Hill, who then five seconds later gets kicked in the head. And the pop train, you, you know, the, the the ovation from the crowd, it was probably the biggest pop of the night. Dave, Dave was there, he said first hand. Um, yeah, that, that shows just how well it can work. Uh, and any time anyone wants to do anything like this, and you do have issues in like this uh, covered in wrestling in 2018, it's important that the absolute fucking bellend gets the shit kicked out of them. Uh, but I love I love things like this, and for the life of me, I can't I can't remember first off the top of my head the uh, they, they did have like a battle with a sexiest match, and I'm pretty they had sure some sort of match. Yeah, yeah that, that probably wasn't very good, but yeah, uh, yeah. just this moment was enough. You you do this, and yeah. then you have them split. But it's it's, it's wrestling perfection in that context. Yeah. But um, next up, as as Dave says, yeah, the crowd are fired up. So what do we need to do? We need to just absolutely kill them dead again. Um, because next, <laughs> rather than having a match, Sting is brought out to spin the wheel for the unsanctioned main event tonight. Sting looks confused as the wheel finally emerges from the floor. We have a long camera angle of the edge of Sting's coat. And then we see a crew member moving the handles, turn the wheel onto the floor. Well done, production guys. Um, in case you're wondering, because this this could easily be one of the most because WCW moments of all time. Um, there, the, the wheel. Imagine, imagine, you know, the the wheel of fortune or the Vegas wheels that they've had on WWF WWE Raws from Vegas before. There are twelve matches on on this uh, wheel, and they are Texas Bull Rope match, which yeah, that could be pretty good. Spinner's Choice, so the the person who um who spun the wheel, I Sting, can choose whatever match he wants. Uh, a Russian Chain match, maybe all right. Dog Collar match again, limitations, but you know can be all right. Uh, an I Quit match, which would be fantastic. We've seen some of them before, and they've always been good. Uh, a barbed wire match. Can't quite see WCW allowing that on pay-per-view. Cage match, again, could be good. Lumberjacks with belts match. Yeah, could be all right. Prince of Darkness match, which I'd imagine is a blindfold match, harking it back is. to the Roberts Martel match, which would be dog shit. Texas <laughs> Death match, which could be awesome. Uh, coal miners glove match what the fuck is that never heard of it and a first blood match again could be pretty intense so these are the choices we have ladies and gentlemen and the wheel spins and the wheel spins seemingly forever without slowing down and then comes to an <laughs> abrupt stop on the coal miners glove match now I'm then thinking why the hell would you choose out of all the options that match and then i went online and there were rumors about this wheel liam dave what do you know about this wheel was it legit was it gimmicks you know i almost want to believe it was legit just because you could not be more tone deaf about what is and isn't going to appeal to your audience than, than picking a coal miners glove match but because Bill Watts were just so damn out of touch with anything. I, I'm actually, I've always gone under the assumption that he had, uh, you know, had, had deliberately picked that. Um, I, like, again, you could not. So the, again, we're in Philadelphia, right? Now, Philadelphia, when you think about gimmick matches, okay, the NWA had been very successful in Philadelphia for several years by this point. But for... I don't know, 30 years by this point, Philadelphia had been a WWF town and 
the matches that they were used to for blow-off matches for, you know, going all the way back to Bruno and Bob Backlund and Hogan were steel cage matches, lumberjack matches, WWF-style Texas death match, which basically meant no DQ, no countout. There was no such thing as a coal miner's glove match in Philadelphia. You know, there are no coal miners in Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> a coal miner's glove match, sure. Maybe in Watts' territory, that was something that made sense. But um, again, there, there's it, you could just feel the kind of womp womp in the in the uh, in the building when it landed on coal miner's glove. So I always assumed that it was uh, it, that it was just a gimmick and it was yet another example of, of Bill Watts being out of touch with his audience at the time. You're right, Dave, because, you know, as you said, the, 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 the life, the life gets sucked out of the building when it lands on Coleman's glove match. Jesse Ventura has to explain to people yeah. what it is because <laughs> no one's heard of it. Yeah, they they looked disappointed at commentary, didn't they? They were like, what the fuck was that? That was hilarious. <laughs> and then Jesse has to recover. He goes, oh, yeah, you get that glove one punch in his power. And you see a little crack. He almost corpses. Has to keep a straight face saying, yeah, one punch. Right, yeah, fuck off, Jesse, mate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. If you think, uh, well, if you think the commentators were disappointed before, they'll be disappointed <laughs> after they see the next match, won't they? Oh, Jesus. man. But I'll, I'll just, I'll just uh, wedge in here. Uh, as we said, it turns out that... The, the spin of the wheel was legit. There was no gimmick. And just when you think it's it's bad in that respect that it's landed on the worst possible one outside of maybe Blindfold, but at least that would have been a bit like interesting or intriguing, not flat-out boring. Um, to make matters worse, think of it this way. They are going out. They don't know until an hour before the match. They don't know what match they're going to do. They just know what the finish is going to be. That means for all the, the diversity on the will, all the various stipulations, they already know roughly what match they're having. So it's not like yeah. the match is going to be good, even if it's a barbed wire match. They know exactly. And we'll get to that when we get to the main event. But the finish is going to be the finish. And one thing, I'll, I'll bring this up again. Imagine, say, it's like lumberjacks with straps. And we'll get to the finish and we'll put that contrast in. So this was going to be ridiculous. Whereas if they gimmicked it to I quit, and the finish that happens happens. Uh, we'll we'll describe yeah. that. It could have worked. So but, yeah, it's ridiculous. So 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 your your sources, your investigations, you're you're concluding that the the wheel was not gimmicked and it was a legit spin. I need to double check the observer melt. So generally, generally, a lot of people get their information from that. But pretty much every everyone I would read, you know, I, I read a lot of uh, reputable sports writers were pretty much describing it as yeah they didn't gimmick it and yeah I might do some cross referencing but I've never seen anyone say yeah. no it was it was gimmick they just picked a crap gimmick I've never seen let's, anyone testify yeah. to that I was going to say let's tweet Meltzer from the uh, because WCW Twitter account and see what he comes back with yeah. because you see this the, the logistics I'm what my when I when I the, the, the short lived era of me booking wrestling promotions some of the stories were a bit shit, but listen, one thing I was always good at was things running to time, which is my, some of my predecessors were not so good at. And you, you know, I'd, I'd figure out how long the match was going, leave five minutes between uh, each match for people to, to exit the ring and then five minutes for entrances and whatnot. If you have spun a legit ungimmicked wheel and you come up with steel cage match or barbed wire match you've got to factor in a good sort of 10 minutes time of setting that match up 
I mean, the coal miners' glove match, they just fortunately just have to stick a lot of pole on top of or next to the one of the ring posts. But some of those matches would take a while to set up. And, and as I said, I can't, I just can't imagine if they had to put a barbed wire match up, how that would pan out. So, oh man, it's it, the mind boggles. We will we'll have to continue investigating. Was the wheel real? Um, if you thought the commentators were disappointed at hearing that it was a coal miners glove match, they ain't seen nothing yet. It's time for the NWA world heavyweight title as Rick rude challenges Masahiro Chono in what, uh, as Dave has just told us, turned out to be the worst match of 1992. So before the match, Gary Michael Capetta introduces the NWA president, Seiji Sakaguchi, and then he introduces a member of Japan's Olympic wrestling team from the Barcelona 1992 games, who turns out to be future IWGP world heavyweight champion Manabu Nakanishi. Uh, Capetta mispronounces both names. Surely, as an announcer, you'd, you'd want to speak with them first. Again, you know, this is when I've commentated, any foreign visitor, I'll go and speak to them before the show. How do you pronounce your name? But hey, it seems to. Dean, it gets better. Um... You know, everyone from the ring announcer to Teddy Long backstage, everyone on this show attempts and butchers the full name of every Japanese wrestler and figure on this show. And yet when it comes to Masahiro Chono, known in many circles as Masa Chono, to avoid that problem, they shorten it down to Chono. <laughs> because Ma- Masa is too hard. Yep. And then um, you know Ross and uh, and, and Ventura go go on to make uh, you know the sort of oh ha ha those names are so hard to pronounce type comments that just make you a little embarrassed to be a wrestling fan. But yeah, and, Ve- and Ventura makes his his traditional uh, uh, Minnesota's taken over by Japanese car manufacturers jokes that he has to make on every show. Every show. So um, the the two appointed referees, Kensuke Sasaki and Harley Race, are brought down. Um, Ole Anson's in the ring. Not even Jim Ross knows why he questions this himself. (laughs) Um, Never explain it, do they? No, because WCW, that's the explanation, Dave. (laughs) Uh, Rude comes down, accompanied by Medusa, um, which is interesting given what has happened with Paul Lee recently. Uh, the crowd, the, the camera then cuts to the crowd and uh, we see, as, as Liam has, has mentioned, we see a, a young blue meanie, Brian Heffron, on camera in the front That's row. Who um, it is. Friend yes. of the podcast. Friend of the podcast, Blue Meanie, lovely chat. We'll have to get him on. Um, we then have Ole Anson pat down both refs. A coin toss determines which ref will be in the ring, one who will be on the outside. Rude wins the coin toss. This is more admin on pay-per-view. Yep. Now, at this point, I types, <laughs> can we just get on with the fucking match, please? Having seen the match, I wish to retract this comment. Um, <laughs> the match starts cautiously with a feely out process, despite the fact these two have faced each other for the title before. Uh, but it does put over the press and the importance of the title, I suppose. Um, the crowd are entertaining themselves already with we want flair chants and lots of woos. Ross takes a pop at the WWF by saying this isn't about muscles and posing, that's the other guys, which is kind of ironic because I remember Jim Ross used to say that WCW is about proper wrestling and how you won't see anyone coming down to the ring with, with a snake here, but 
Jake the State Rollers and his Cobra are yet to come. Um, seven minutes in, this match hasn't got out of first gear yet. The crowd's dead. Chono has a camel clutch on for an eternity. Rude gets a two count with a swinging neck breaker and then goes straight to a chin lock, another rest hold. This is plodding with a capital P. Uh, Chono tries to go for the STF, which Ross puts over huge, but Rude blocks it by clamping his arms around the back of his neck. Rude lands a pile driver, which gets a mild reaction. It's an exciting wrestling move. Chono gets his foot on the ropes to break the count. We then go back to a chin lock. What the hell is going on with this match? Uh, with Rude's chin lock clamps on still, the crowd react to what apparently was a fan in the crowd getting arrested. I don't know if, that, if you can confirm this, there Dave. Was a fight. There was an absolute Donnybrook of a fight. <laughs> It's Not in the ring, in the cracker crowd. of a fight that that was better than anything that happened in the ring all night. <laughs> match off the night, match off the night. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I still pretty specifically remember that. That was better than anything that happened in the ring all night. Awesome. It is along with along with the Medusa Paulie. Angle is the biggest reaction of the night. Uh, Rude lands a top rope drop kick to no reaction. Harley Race accidentally gets a Yakuza kick from Chono straight in the face. While Sasaki is tending to race, Chono throws Rude over the top rope, which grazes Sasaki, and Sasaki, an active pro wrestler, goes down and out on the floor. Uh, Rude nails Chono with a rude awakening neckbreaker and makes the cover despite seeing both referees down in front of him. And as I've asked previously, why on earth would a wrestler do this? He knows there's no referee. Um, Chono then decides to not sell the rude awakening, clamps, clamps on the STF. Sasaki and Race both get in the ring. Sasaki calls for the bell while Race waves his hands as if to call the match off as well. Um, Ventura complains that as uh, Sasaki raises Chono's hand, Race says no, raises Rude's hand. He gets on the mic and says Chono is disqualified for throwing Rude over the top rope. Uh, Sasaki then slams Race so Harley Race can get his contractually obligated pay-per-view bump and then <laughs> drop kicks and clotheslines Rude out the ring before clotheslining and suplexing Race. The aftermatch shenanigans with the refs was, was actually 10 times more exciting than the match which in case you're wondering was, was utter dog shit um dave how did you how did you survive this and and are we bringing back some traumatic memories for you Woo! oh man where do i start first of all i feel like i know you made a quick reference to this earlier in the podcast but um just rick rude without the mustache with just that that's that's like the hulkster without his fu manchu and without his uh long hair and back you know it's just so disorienting that was the first um, red flag think, wasn't it yeah um I think, you know, something that you have to kind of put a little bit in context here was that Chono and Rude had actually had a tremendous match in Japan over the summer. Oh, yes. Um, yes. And G1 it, Climax. In, in the G1 tournament. And it um, that match actually finished among the honorable mentions in the, uh, in the Wrestling Observer 92 Awards for match best match of the year. So there was a level of expectation going into this and, you know, at this point, everyone remembers Rick Rude's personality being just a Hall of Fame personality and character. But Rick was at just the, his absolute peak as a worker in the ring at this point, where he was having great matches with guys like, uh, you know, like Ricky Steamboat and Chono and guys who were really bringing out the absolute best of him as a worker. So coming into this, at least the hardcore fans were expecting that, 
okay, these guys tore down the house in Tokyo. They're, they're probably going to do it again. And then this happens, you know, um, in the wake of uh, a 30 minute snoozer of a fight, they put on, you know, what, what, what they were attempting to do kind of like an old school classic world championship type of match that just the crowd just wasn't having it at this point. And then, with all the convoluted stipulations and and the uh, the double referee and the the fight in the crowd being far more interesting to the fans than the rest holds, um, yeah, it was really uh, um, nothing wrong with it technically, but because of the um, because of the the expectations going into this that that they couldn't really live up to, and because of just the whole idea in the building that everything would, that the show was just kind of dying a Royal death. This just kind of accelerated the process. And yeah, you were right. Harley kind of put everyone to shame at the end of this, right? He was, must've been about 50 years old at the time. And he was taking bumps all over the ring that, uh, just kind of put the rest of the card to shame. And uh, I guess I'm fixating on that because I'm trying to forget the rest of the match. Yeah, we've <laughs> we've discussed this several times. We've actually come to the conspiracy theory that there were probably there was probably more than one WCW pay-per-view in the early 90s where Harley Race wasn't actually booked to go out and get his ass kicked. But he's just run out there and, and forced the baby face <laughs> to beat him up because he loves it. We, how many pay-per-views have we done so far? We, you know, this podcast is, is only relatively new. We've got so many more more dreadful WCW pay-per-views and TV shows to look at and we've already covered several times where Harley Race has just gone and got the shit kicked out of him and I'm starting <laughs> I'm starting to have you know I always enjoyed him as a heel manager but I'm starting to have a, a new foundation of appreciation for the fact that he just wants to go and get beaten up is that too much to ask Harley Race just wants to go out there get beaten up go back smoke a fag drink a beer you know? that's all he wants from his Sunday night offerings yeah this this match I mean in, in my book it's completely spot on that a match like this would come above the the hideous atrocities we'll be covering in the second for worst match because it probably is the worst match in wrestling history that's been contested by two by participants that have actually had great matches together. You know, you 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 expect your your Jackie Gaders and your Jenna Marescas and your Giant Gon- Gonzalez and you 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 know there's certain you know people there are certain people when they step between the ropes they are guaranteeing negative stars. But these two guys can do better. They did do better. But if you look at it, Rude had a face like Thunder the whole time. And maybe it's the fact that the moustache being removed allowed us to see that he had a face like Thunder. I don't know. But um, <laughs> the chemistry between the two is non-existent. How many times did Rick Rude try and come off the top rope and Chono was just like, what are you doing? You know, just, just general transitions weren't there. It was like watching two amateurs. It was it was it was incredible just how off key this was between all the the soap opera wranglings that no one cares about uh, the fact that someone who just pretty much turned babyface in perfect fashion was out there doing a listless hill manager routine moments later and to think it we're still seven years away from um, China Jeff Jarrett and Triple H having a weird dynamic where China was a babyface feuding with Jeff Jarrett, but then would go and help heel Triple H be a heel. Uh, and people slated Russo for that, and rightfully so, but seven years before that, we've got this. Uh, everything about this is terrible, and it, we, we have every right to be angry about it because we should be expecting better. When these two guys walk out, uh, 
the live crowd, the people watching on pay-per-view, even people watching 20 years later, 25 years later on WWE Network, expect better. Whereas if I see like the giant Gonzalez come out, I'm just going to skip it. I, you know, I know to skip it. So it makes it especially disappointing. Well, uh, move talking about uh, having high expectations, we're now getting ready for the Barbarian having a world title shot. Everyone. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm, I'm pumped for that. Yeah. Yeah, so they show him training with Cactus Jack, which includes him having breeze blocks broken over his back. Uh, I'm not sure how this helps anyone train for a uh, wrestling that, match. That was so Bill Watts, wasn't it? These things. Proof, come on, it proves how tough he was. The cowboy was a tough man and blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead. So it is uh, the WCW World Heavyweight title, the Barbarian with Cactus Jack versus our champion, Ron Simmons. The Barbarian, big fearsome heel comes out to completely inappropriate music. Um, basically, <laughs> Diamond the problem Studs got... music. Was it Diamond Studs music? It was used by the Diamond Stud and it suited the Diamond Stud because it's like a, it's a flashy, flamboyant, heel, you know, well, let's face it, most WCW themes are very generic in the early 90s, but it did have a bit of Diamond Studdy sort of thing about it. And when it well, comes yeah. to heels, there's no bigger contrast than the Barbarian and the Diamond fucking Stud. Exactly, I was going to say, play picture the two of them <laughs> side by side. What do they have in common? They both work for WCW, that's about it. It gets, wor- it gets worse because Ron Simmons comes out after him and to, again, to 20 years before we had Roman Reigns, he comes out to the Doom theme. So if you think Roman Reigns was the first person to try and siphon off an old tag team or stable theme and it sounded pathetic, no, Ron Simmons has already done it. Although the Doom theme was never really good for heels, so it probably suited him better here. But I think the problem we have with this match is that nobody buys Barbarian as a world title challenger, and, and really no one's buying Ron Simmons as world champion either. Um, Simmons comes out with Teddy Long and a ton of security guards to try and put him over as a big deal, and I guess like the old boxing world champions would come out with an entourage. Uh, the two heavyweights run at each other with shoulder blocks. Neither man goes down. It's, it's hardly thrilling. Um, Simmons then knocks Barbarian to the floor with a flying shoulder tackle, which sends Barbarian rolling to the floor to receive advice from Cactus Jack. Cactus later dif- distracts the ref while Barbarian drills Simmons into the ring post, which apparently should be an automatic disqualification. Um, back in the ring, Barbarian executes a, a sort of million-dollar dream sleeper hold, but he doesn't have look to have it on effectively, yet Simmons still flakes to the canvas. Um, I was well, yeah, the last thing we need in this match really is a rest hold, let's face it. Um, Ross gives it the Japanese name and uh, Ventura goes to town on him. I'm, I'm getting the feeling throughout the show that Jesse really does like Japanese people. Barbarian still has this hold locked in. Uh, the match is being wrestled at a snail's pace. The crowd are dead again. Barbarian misses a top rope elbow drop. Simmons hits a half-hearted looking sidewalk slam for a two count. And after a slam, Simmons hits a flying shoulder block but is distracted by Cactus up on the apron. Barbarian kicks Simmons in the back of the head, sending him to the floor. Cactus throws him straight back in again. Barbarian goes to the top again. He lands a diving headbutt, Liam's favourite move. But uh, Simmons gets his shoulder up to break the count. Still nobody's believing for a second that he's got a chance of winning the title. Uh, Barbarian runs up for the big boot. And yep, the big boot was really was his finishing move. Um, But Simmons catches him with a power slam for the win out of nowhere. Um, This was awful, but nowhere near as awful as Rude Chono. Um... Unfortunately for me, you had two tag team wrestlers put in the position of having a match for the World Singles title. So Bill Watts basically made his bones as a promoter by by pushing the junkyard dog and, uh, you know, had had the uh, 
back at a time when African American wrestlers weren't usually pushed as the uh the, the the top babyface hero. He made tremendous amount of money with with Junkyard Dog, and then he spent the rest of his career trying way too hard to replicate, um, you know, the uh, African American babyface on top. With never found someone else who had JYD's kind of unique charisma for that time and place. So. You know, I seem to recall Simmons actually getting off to a pretty good start as champion in terms of, like, the night he actually won the championship in Baltimore. They set him up. There was He comes in, he beats Vader. There's a really big pop, and then it just fizzles almost immediately after he wins the title, you know? Yeah, that night night he won. That night he won was – I always remember watching that on WCW Worldwide in the UK, and that was absolutely magical. The reaction was – Superb. That, that was, was the, the lottery draw, wasn't it? Jake, Jake the Snake made his debut, took out Sting, two yep. DDTs on a chair. So it builds into this. The, the dovetailing was fine. The actual booking made sense, at least. Uh, and right. then they had the lottery draw, didn't they? So, it was a, yeah, it was a great moment. So it was an awesome moment. They get off to a great start, and then immediately from there, you know, they, they start, I mean they're positioning their world championship is almost secondary to the NWA title. It's not the main event. It is, um, I don't recall. I don't recall. I, I'm trying to remember who Simmons main main opponent was between winning the championship from Vader and then defending against barbarian a few months later. But the mere fact that I can't remember it tells you, yeah. you know, you're just how uh, kind of weak they pushed him. So it was like, they had this great moment. They could have done something with it. Um, if they had built him up smart, they didn't. And the end result is that three, three or four months into this, you know, you've got him fighting the barbarian who no promoter, no disrespect to the barbarian who had a reasonable enough career as a professional wrestler, but no promoter before or after ever considered the Barbarian as a plausible world heavyweight championship challenger. So, you know, you've got a bad card that's going south really, really fast. You've had a quote-unquote world title match that was the worst match of the year that seemed to last for about a year and a half right before this. And now you're going back to uh, the guy who's supposed to be your company's champion, um fighting fighting someone who no one sees as a main eventer in what isn't even the main event of the card and you know that's just you're basically inviting your your audience not to care about your champion or your championship match and that's exactly how it played out but but you're forgetting dave the barbarian is really really tough he's really yeah. tough like <laughs> super tough he's cinder block tough Taking body slams from a bunch of jobbers, tough. Oh yeah, but um, yeah, it's, it's worth pointing out that you know Ron Simmons, as a, a baby face in Philadelphia on the respect levels, he's a lot closer to Ricky Steamboat than he is, you know, the the three guys in the opening match. He's a Absolutely. guy, you know, you know, you put him in a better situation if he's fighting for the U.S. title or something like that, a little bit lower down. He's he's going to get a good reaction. He's he's quite well respected, decent guy. Um, Absolutely, I'm sorry to interrupt. He's a yeah, tough, no nonsense guy, and you know. Philadelphia may have been a heel crowd, but if you were a tough, no-nonsense, no-BS babyface, they'd get behind you. 
yeah, he'd have been absolutely fine if he weren't just absolutely put to death. And, that, and that's the point I have to make about Bill Watts. This seems to be problematic in all of wrestling. Every promoter slash booker who has one big successful idea... Uh, Vince Russo being a great example, Eric Bischoff a great example, there's so many of them, they go to that idea over and over again and they don't realise that evolution is key and I'm not convinced that Vince McMahon is a genius as much as he is a, a ruthless businessman but if anything would point to his genius it's that, it's the fact that he he at least evolves and goes yeah. with the times, even if he's drag kicking and screaming. And the only reason he doesn't do so much now is because he's got to a position where he doesn't have to. But he outlasted all these guys because he didn't hang on to one idea. And it's such a shame that Watts was clinging on to these things because, yeah, what the end result is just a, a dreadful match between a guy, a barbarian, who's now remembered quite fondly as being a good hand, and Ron Simmons, who's a very likable, very capable. Uh, Babyface, what should be, you know, lower down the card. It's a, it's a good old host match. It's a good old tussle between two big men. But the, this is the thing. Both, yeah. You, know, you think of Ron Simmons, and outside of this, what do you think of him? You think of him in Doom, and you think of him in the APA. With the Barbarian, you think of him in the Powers of Pain, and you think of him in the Faces of Fear. These yeah. are both tag, tag team wrestlers. Yeah, and for the record, Dean, uh, yeah, he did throw a diving headbutt, but like he did at Havoc 96 when we did the comparisons to Chris Benoit with Mike Quackenbush, he he has the decency to land his hands and knees. This is true. This is true. We won't open that can of worms again, but he he at least throws a a diving headbutt that doesn't do him damage, even if it still looks shit. So uh, we're back after that match with Bruno and Tony Schiavone. Bruno then uh, puts over Eric Watts, and Watts, the boss's son, is brought out for an interview where he says nothing and gets booed. Uh, Ron Simmons comes up to the interview position where he says it's not over with the Barbarian yet great he puts over how great eric watts is and they then try to get bruno to endorse simmons as world champion and this this just comes across as so forced and, and uncomfortable yep yeah i mean how did it feel live dave man i mean look like anyone my age who grew up in the in the northeast uh, northeast united states uh, i i love bruno as much as anyone else but um you have to consider that at the time Bruno was on this was this was around the time that the uh, Vince was having uh, all sorts of trouble with with just scandals on multiple fronts. And Bruno was front and center in the media in pointing the finger at Vince for, you know, for for steroids and for um, for there were the sexual scandals and there were um, just, you know, the general kind of clownishness of the product. So for him, I'm sure when, when Bruno agreed to do this, look, Bruno and Bill Watts went way back. They had a very big drawing program in Madison Square Garden. They were two old school guys. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Bruno didn't know how much of a uh, how, how much of a, a, a a cluster this whole event was going to be when he signed on for it but it was just such a horrible contrast to, to see him try to uh try to give eric watts of all people the right at least with ron simmons you know it, it doesn't really work but at least that's the guy who's there who's holding the belt who has uh earned his spot but to put eric watts up on the uh up up on stage with that and try to uh pretend that eric watts belongs on stage with bruno san martino that's just uh that is just malpractice of the highest order, and you know this will not. This night will does not go down on uh, 
the, when you talk about Bruno San Martino's great moments, it, it, it is not one of them. Poor Bruno. Oh, dear. Well, um, Ross and Ventura then talk at ringside. And th- this is all to give us a bit of time to uh, attach the, uh, the pole for the coal miners' glove match to the ring post. Again, this this is because WCW moment. They could have just played a video package documenting Jake Roberts' WCW debut, which we mentioned earlier, which was absolutely awesome. But instead, we have Bruno Sammartino putting over Eric Watts. Um, and this is this is unsanctioned. Now, I've never understood why why people have these things billed as unsanctioned. Because if it was unsanctioned. You wouldn't have it on the pay-per-view. They, they say it means that if either wrestler gets injured, they can't sue WCW or something. Mr. Hat, please explain. Oh, certainly. So, basically, you've we've just had, albeit abysmal, we've had two world title matches. This is not a world title match. And in the realm of old-school Bill Watts, and still in the realm of the 90s where certain things are followed, like the champion always coming out last, etc. And we've still got some semblance of that. Uh, this excuses a non-world title match to headline the show. And the funny thing is, is if you think it's just old school, look at NXT 2018, two takeovers with Gargano versus Ciampa. Both labelled as non-sanctioned matches. One non-sanctioned, one non-sanctioned street fight. Both great matches, but purely to excuse them going above Alistair Black in the, in the pecking order. So it still happens, funnily enough, to this day. It's a very good point. But that's that's basically why you do it. It's not to say every instance was done like that, but that is generally yeah. why you do non-sanctioned lights out. It means the the match that should be top of the card. There's an excuse why we are not doing it, and we're covering up the fact that it's just because we don't have much faith in the match or the champion. Right. Okay. Thank you very much. So it is our unsanctioned coal miners glove match as Jake the Snake Roberts takes on Sting. One one other thing actually that springs to mind. Jake Roberts wrestled as Jake Roberts before he went to the WWF, so that's why why he could he could use that name. But as far as I'm aware, the snake gimmick was a, a WWF creation. So I've always wondered how he was able to be Jake the Snake Roberts and not get into trouble with the WWF. I'm pretty sure he was called Jake the Snake before he went to the WWF. I could be wrong. I feel like when he was in, in Mid South in Georgia, he was um, they were calling him Jake the Snake, but that that could be faulty memory at this point. Uh, but he, I don't remember him actually use bringing a snake to the ring with him until WWF. Ah, right. So it's a nickname, right? Yeah, and obviously WWF can't actually copyright a snake. So a snake. Yeah, <laughs> they can't literally stop him from bringing, especially if he owns the snake. It's his own property. So yeah. I'm guessing that's that's pretty much it. I, I tell you, who can stop him from uh, bringing a snake to the ring? Hertfordshire Police, but that's another story for another day. Um, he previously, uh, so yes, uh, Jake Roberts comes out to what will later become the Hollywood Blondes theme music. Um, he previously had this horrible music that had him talking over the top of it that was awful. And he also um, had that Slam Jam track, which was awful, but I'm now starting to think he never actually used, because nobody in this show is using their Slam Jam track, and after this, Jake is gonzo. So He's gone. that was not only a terrible theme, but a terrible theme recording in a higher money studio for fuck all reason. Because <laughs> WCW. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, Jim Ross talks about having Cobra anti-venom in the back just in case it's needed. And again, I can't help thinking about how he used to knock the WWF for the exact same thing. <laughs> um, so out comes Jake. 
for a main event pay-per-view looking like he couldn't give a flying fuck. Maybe he watched the last two matches. I don't know. Um, Sting <laughs> comes out to a good pop. Can Sting bring this crowd back to life? Um, Jake immediately tries to climb the pole, but Sting stops him and then gives him a body slam. The, the pole itself looks ridiculously high, and it also looks stupid with this glove stuck on top of it like it's an item of lost property at <laughs> a train station or something. Um, the match spills to the outside where, where Sting wraps Jake's shoulder around the ring post. Sting goes for the glove, but he gets cut off by Jake. Remember, the idea is if you hit your opponent with this glove, they are knocked out. Um, Jake climbs the pole but gets stopped and crotches himself on the top rope, slowly falling backwards onto the canvas. Um, and given the way this feud started, there's just no intensity to the match. Um, the match again, and, and how often have we said that about WCW main events in the past? Um, the match again goes to the outside where Jake hits Sting with a chair to a mild response from the crowd and then starts choking Sting with his wrist tape. Sting misses a Stinger splash. Jake lands the short arm clothesline, signals for the DDT. He lands the DDT to a big pop, but is selling his injured arm. Rather than go for the pin, of course, Jake climbs the pole, but Sting cuts him off despite just being DDT'd. Sting climbs the pole. He retrieves the glove while Cactus Jack has run to the ring with Jake's Cobra in a bag. Sting hits Jake from behind with the glove. And Jake very obviously places the snake on his face and falls over backwards while Sting pins him. Uh, Jake's then shown with this snake hanging from his face and blood streaming out. It's another awful finish, an awful match. Oh, my. Um, you know, so on paper, on paper, like, this, this shouldn't have been, like, this was actually, there was a decent buildup for this show and this main event. And there was a little bit of a... Uh, there was actually a decent buzz for this going in because Sting really needed like more good heel opponents. You know, he was Sting was always right on the cusp of becoming that like neck, like the guy who could carry the business, right? And he had a couple of runs with the championship, and you know, I mean, they there was the 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 one run that got there was the whole Black Scorpion ridiculousness, and uh, um. He really needed like a, a fresh big name to come in, and on paper, Jake seemed to be that name, right? He was a well-respected veteran. People, uh, people remembered him from his WWF run. He hadn't, you know, we we didn't really know about Jake's demons back then, the way we ended up finding out later. Um, so on paper, this had like a really a really good build up. The, the the spin the wheel, make the deal build up was was intriguing on paper, but not in execution. Um, so everything seemed to be positioned on paper for this to be something to kind of, uh, for Sting to kind of get his shine back. Right. And then, so you have the combination of them coming out after two, just absolutely abysmal matches one after another. So the crowds, the crowd is pretty dead. And then the match itself is kind of paint by numbers, you know, like, I feel like if there had been a hot crowd all night long, the way the match hasn't laid out wouldn't have been bad. It wouldn't have been great by any means, but it wouldn't have been just the abomination it came across as. And then, um, I mean, just an all time classic horrendous finish with Jake and the snake. Right. Uh, I just, I, I pretty specifically remember everyone being like, what the hell is going on? You know, because it was obvious that Jake, it was really obvious that Jake was holding the, the snake up 
to his face to try to make it look like the snake was biting him and then the snake actually bit him. Um, <laughs> you know, so we, we just see like, it just, I just, in my brain, I just have this, you know, what looks like animal abuse uh, in the middle of the ring and really kind of is. Um, yeah, it was just, it was a, a blah match that led to one of just, just one of the all-time classic, like, bad finishes. Bear in mind, especially as you said, Dave, that Philadelphia at this point is a WWF town. Six months prior to this match, Jake the Snake Roberts was facing The Undertaker at WrestleMania. So he is, you know, fresh off a big, big WWF run in the main event. And, and as you said, it's just blah. Case in point, Dean, uh, Halloween Havoc 92, as it turns out, drew very well. It drew a massively above average buy rate. Uh, and made some decent money for WCW by the stands of what they could do, <laughs> you know, being WCW and being 1992. It was also their biggest gate of the year. Yeah, so J- Jake Roberts, especially up against Sting, was a draw. The, as as yeah. Dave touched upon, the intrigue of Spin the Wheel, Make the Deal, which is something that even in pro wrestling now, they, they should be doing more things like that because it can be used effectively if you uh, gimmick the fucking will. Um, <laughs> all these things combined, and it gave them some good money. And they went and blew it down the toilet with an with a match and an ending that came straight out of John Travolta's Battlefield Earth. Um, yeah, I I I loved the not not just the whole fake you know, call it fake the snake I suppose you could not not just that part of the finish but the fact that they've been selling this stupid coal miner's glove all night long as being well since the the will land on it as being a a KO punch and Sting hops down. Jake's got the snake. Sting hops down. It gives him like a light little tap on his kidney. And that apparently pushes the snake onto him. And the whole thing was just fucking... <laughs> and it gets better. So as I'm doing a little bit of research and cross-referencing things, the Wikipedia entry for Halloween Havoc 92 is fantastic. Because in the description of the event, the last paragraph reads, and I uh, quote... The main event was a spin-the-wheel, make-the-deal match with the match type determined by a spinning wheel. Sting pinned Jake Roberts after hitting him with a coal miner's glove which caused a snake Roberts was holding to turn on him and bite him in the face. So you didn't realise this, we actually had a baby face turn in the main event. <laughs> which if, we, know, if that was true, like, it would make it more interesting. I also feel like we should have a little nod to the fact that um, like, right before we went to the finish... Jake actually hit Sting with the DDT. And, you know, the DDT is one of the most legendary, like, devastating finishing maneuvers of all time. And 30 seconds later, Sting's back on his feet, like, no selling yeah. DDT. And hopping around the extended pole <laughs> with like, a high-flying yeah, move. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I suppose they they could have sold. They could have turned around and gone. You know, Sting Sting's been DDT'd from pillar to post in the in the attacks by Jake Roberts. He took two on the chair. Maybe his neck's develops and condition. They could at least. You know, it's it's, it's not that great. But at He's least built up in the Yeah, and to be honest, uh, Jesse Ventura and Jim Ross really brought some decent rationale to a lot of the matches. I I really appreciate them in the opening match trying to explain how Michael Hayes could be a bit of a weak link because he's been doing double duty between commentating, managing and wrestling. Little things like that. So they're a really good team on this for the most part when they weren't being racist. I feel like you actually got to shout out Jesse a little bit here because for most of his um for most of his stint in WCW, he did the most blatant just I don't care, I'm just cashing in a paycheck 
you know, he barely even tried as a color commentator, but for whatever reason, uh, he really brought it this night and tried to make chicken salad out of, uh, you know what? Yeah. Dean and I did discuss that a, a little while back. I think it was WrestleWall 92, whereas there were certain times where he, he brought the insight and the knowledge. It was really good. But there are times, I think there was, there was a couple of matches on that WrestleWall show with Johnny B. Bad, where he was just trying to be Bobby Heenan and trying to rationalise heel behaviour. But he wouldn't do it in that daft slapstick way where Heenan's blatantly talking crap. He do, you know, he tries to come across a straight shooter. So it was really hit and miss with him in WCW. But yeah, I thought he was good in this show, which, yeah, not many things were good in this show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was do, yeah. do we know do we know why uh why Jake Roberts left WCW very soon after this? Probably the same thing as everyone else. He asked Bill Watts for more money, I'm guessing. I don't know that's the case, but that's that's normally why people leave those stuff on the Watts era. I suppose so. So um yeah, so after this match, uh, we then go back to Tony Giovanni and Bruno Sammartino, who basically say nothing. We then go back to Ross and Ventura to summarise, and I'm just thinking, can we please just get this show over and done with? They have a load of flannel at the beginning, a load of flannel at the end. And I mean we we mentioned this previously. Um it's hard to believe that this was the same company that delivered the absolutely superb WrestleWall 1992 just five months previously. I mean, I suppose in essence, it was a totally different company in all, all but name. Um, yeah, the talent was either leaving like the Steiners or was woefully used while Watts brought mid-card jobbers in and, and tried to position them as, as main eventers. Um, Watts' reign in WCW would soon come to an end itself, universally regarded as a, as a massive failure. I mean, Dave, how did you feel leaving the Philadelphia Civic Center that night and hopping back on a Greyhound. <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you, what, I'm going to, just going to be a little tangent here, but this was such a uh, disaster of a road trip that I had picked out a, uh, a hotel. Again, this is before the internet. Um, so you, so you couldn't really research things the way you did, but I picked out a hotel that in a guidebook, it said like, Hey, this is a popular you know, hotel for budget travelers. And I'm right. a college kid. And it turned out to be like a, uh, you know, like an hourly rental type of place. Oh. So, like, it was the scariest hotel I've ever been in. I basically spent a night like sleeping with one eye open and then uh, got back on the bus. So as it turns out, there's a little kicker to all this. I, uh, I end up going back home um, and, you know, I'm, I'm like a freshly minted hardcore fan who uh, thinks I know a whole lot more about wrestling than I actually do. So I actually write Bill Watts a letter, right? And, and uh, tell him, like, hey, look, I came all the way down from Boston. This was a lousy show. Uh, you know, I think I made a bunch of, like, smarky-type, like, you know, you, you put in a bunch of uh, bunch of kind of, like, insider terms to show how smart you are type of thing. And I mail it off to WCW headquarters and never expect to hear anything back. And then um, a couple weeks later, I got a package in the mail uh, from Atlanta, Georgia. And oh, wow. Inside, uh-huh. Inside, there's, there's, there's a letter, and it was actually a, a typewritten letter response from Bill Watts. Uh, that's like, <laughs> uh, Fantastic. Uh, Bill Watts, right? I So help me God, I wish I still had this letter. But it was, um, it was something to the effect of, like, he, he played dumb to all my, like, insider terms. It was something like, I don't know what you mean by booking the finishes, but all I can do as the promoter is put the matches together. And then it's up to the wrestlers to, uh, to, uh, 
you know, wrestle to the best of their capabilities or something like that. That is so Bill Watts. (laughs) So Bill Watts. Also true, you know, to an extent that, hey, the wrestlers do have to deliver good matches. But, um, you know, it was definitely a Bill Watts type thing. I think the letter... the letter offered me a free pair of tickets to the next show in Philadelphia, which I was not traveling back to Philadelphia to watch WCW <laughs> anytime soon. You know, I did end up going to the ECW arena about six times during the heyday. So I did have better memories of wrestling in Philadelphia. And I think uh, there was also, so the package also had like merchant. There was like, I want to say like, uh, like a Brian Tillman t-shirt and a, uh, Beautiful eight by ten photo of Johnny B. Bad that went straight in the trash, and uh, <laughs> like a magazine or a calendar or something like that. So, so, so basically, all stock clearance stuff. Because <laughs> he's trying to shit can Brian Pillman anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's exactly what I was thinking. Is the guy that we don't want to push have his t-shirt so he can get shot of it? Oh, that is that, Dave. That is just that is an amazing story. That is an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. So before we finish tonight's podcast, uh, Dave, we have, as we do with all our guests, asked you to pick a uh, WCW theme tune of your choice. What have you gone for? I think I have to go with the original Sting theme song, the one that goes back to uh, his days in the NWA and the, the one that he came out to this night in Philadelphia. Not that I want to associate this song with that evening, but, um, you know, it was such a catchy, energetic, uh, high-energy song that really captured what Sting was about at the time. And, uh, you know, it's one of those wrestling themes that still pop into my head for no apparent reason every once in a while, so it was pretty good. And I really hated the Man Called Sting theme song that came later, so I just want to give a shout-out to the original Sting theme music. Definitely high-energy. 
the thing I always thought about with this one was, ironically, it sounded very similar or similar in some ways to the Ultimate Warrior, who of course he came into the business with. It, it yeah, did, and yet for the way I looked at it, because there was a bit of similarity because those two guys, you know, their careers were intertwined, and I'm sure they were thinking of this when they gave the thing to Sting because the Warriors theme was already established. But for me, I like to liken Sting's theme, energetic-wise, because that's the word I think of, Sting's theme is like a tin of Red Bull, and the Ultimate Warriors theme is a line of cocaine. <laughs> there you go. It's much more measured, the Sting theme, isn't it? And, and on that note, what a better note for us to end on than that. Dave, I would just like to say thank you so very much for joining us. Very much appreciated. You got it, my friend. Thanks for having me. And uh, if we want to find you on social media, where can we get you? Uh, my Twitter handle is Dave Doyle MMA, D-A-V-E-D-O-Y-L-E-M-M-A. At, uh, on Twitter, I also have a professional Facebook page, facebook.com slash Dave Doyle MMA. And that brings us to the end of episode number 16. Thank you so much for joining us. Please, if you haven't already, give us a follow over on Twitter at BecauseWCW. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash BecauseWCW. And if you are listening to us via iTunes, please do rate and review us and spread the word. We'll be back very soon. So on behalf of my co-host Liam Hatt, this is the Twisted Genius. Dean Ayers saying thanks for joining us, and I'll see you ringside.